You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The scripture reading for today's sermon comes from Mark 8, verses 1 through 13. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away, hungry, to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Delantana. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into his boat again, and went to the other side. This is a word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, certainly uh, again this morning we will see revealed on the pages of your perfect word the grace and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I do pray as we have asked each week that all of us in one way or another would be drawn to the Lord Jesus. But I pray specifically this morning as the primary emphasis of this text is a warning to pause and to consider something very important. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the grace to do this, that you would give us the grace to do this honestly and humbly without discouragement. But do convict us if conviction is needed. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Remember that time you were in need and you cried out to God to provide and he did? It wasn't when or in the way you thought he would, but he did provide. Remember that time you were alone and afraid, and confused, and the Holy Spirit brought comfort and reassurance to your soul. Remember that time you prayed that God would work miraculously in your loved one, and after months or even years, he answered? 
Remember when you search the scriptures for wisdom and guidance and it served as a lamp to light your path, keeping you from danger and leading you toward righteousness? Remember when you were overcome with anxiety and you fumbled through your prayers? Even when you didn't want to pray? And in time, the peace of God pushed out anxiety and peace began to guard your heart and mind. Remember when you were battling again with the same sin struggle, feeling like you would never experience any freedom and God granted you the grace in that moment to overcome temptation. Now here's the thing, friends. If you're a Christian, you can certainly identify with at least one of the examples I just gave or something similar. But you also know that you don't just experience these kinds of challenges and moments of crisis once. You experience them over and over again. And no matter how many times God has provided for you in your need and comforted your pain and answered your prayer and met you in the scriptures and calmed your anxiety and granted you success in your sin struggle, no matter how many times you've experienced his grace, you're tempted to forget all about it. When the second or third or 50th round of spiritual challenge or crisis comes, it's like you've completely forgotten who God is. You act as if you've experienced nothing in the past that would fuel present faith. This is why you've heard so often from this pulpit that one of the greatest dangers God's people face is the danger of forgetting. Forgetting the word and works of God. Forgetting who he is and what he's done. Week after week, as we open God's word, it's like we're visiting the divine optometrist as the Holy Spirit makes sure we can see clearly what matters most, adjusting our spiritual eyesight so we can behold afresh the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, remembering, remembering again what we've so easily forgotten. This problem we have, brothers and sisters, is not new. The disciples easily forgot who Jesus was and what he had done. They needed their sight corrected. And we'll see as well that the Pharisees had an even greater problem. They were altogether spiritually blind. I think there are two reminders in our text today Reminders aimed at helping us see again. To see again with either fresh eyes or with new eyes who Jesus 
is. Reminder number one. Jesus is the Messiah sent from heaven. Jesus is the Messiah sent from heaven. We find this in verses 1 through 10. Look at the text again with me. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. If this sounds familiar, it should. Because something very similar happened just two chapters ago. Contrary to what some critical scholars have claimed, this is not a slightly different retelling of the same miraculous feeding we read about in Mark 6. The two accounts are similar, but they are not the same. Jesus is doing again what he did just a short time before. This is why verse 1 says, In those days when again a great crowd had gathered. This is a new crowd in a new place with the same need as the 5,000 back in chapter 6. They had been listening to Jesus teach. They were hungry and they had nothing to eat. Verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's take a few minutes to examine both the similarities and the differences between the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 here in chapter 8. First, in the feeding of the 5,000, I believe that number refers only to the men. So the whole crowd was probably between 10 and 15,000 people. Here, the entire crowd numbers 4,000. Second, the miraculous feeding in chapter 6 began with five loaves and two fish. And here the text specifies that there are seven loaves and a few small fish. Third, the crowd in chapter 6 had been following Jesus for one full day. And in chapter 8, they have been with him for three days. Fourth, the location is different. The first feeding was north of Galilee and the second southeast of Galilee. Fifth, while the first feeding started with less food, they ended up with more leftovers. Twelve basketfuls the first time and only seven basketfuls this time. 
6th. The assembled crowd in Mark 6 was made up mostly of Jews, and in Mark 8, it's primarily Gentiles that have gathered. Now, you may wonder, why would Jesus do this again? Why the same miracle twice? Let me give you three answers to that question. Answer number one, Jesus had compassion for those in need. Answer number one is pretty simple. Jesus had compassion for those in need. This is stated explicitly in both Mark 6 and again in Mark 8. Look at verse 2 again. I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If you've been walking with us through the Gospel of Mark, you know that this is a reoccurring theme. Jesus is not disinterested or aloof when it comes to the needs of those around him. And he doesn't simply care about the spiritual needs of those he comes in contact with, though he does. Jesus cares about the whole person. This past week, as I was thinking about this point, meditating on the compassion of the God-man, Jesus Christ, I I thought about something James says as he's exhorting Christians to show their faith by their works. He gives a, a negative example of someone who sees another in need but ignores their physical need, giving them nothing but spiritual platitudes. Here's what James writes. This is in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The illustration James gives is of something Jesus embodies perfectly. The living Christ is the perfect manifestation of living faith. Brothers and sisters, if if we are going to follow in the footsteps of our Lord, then we will be moved by compassion when we encounter both spiritual and physical needs. It is easy for us to offer spiritual platitudes without doing the hard work of caring for the immediate physical need. Now, I commend you as a church. I can't tell you how many times my heart is deeply encouraged to hear stories, and I hear them almost weekly, of physical needs that have arisen within the congregation, and many of you are quick to meet those physical needs as you also seek to minister to the spiritual needs that are present. 
in this you are following the example of the Lord Jesus. Why would Jesus do the same miracle twice? Because two different crowds had the same need and he's a compassionate Christ. Here's the second answer. Jesus wanted to further prove his identity. Jesus wanted to further prove his identity. Even though a huge part of his audience is different, don't forget that his own disciples are still struggling to believe. It it wouldn't be wrong for us to see this second feeding as the Lord Jesus teaching by means of miraculous repetition. He's reiterating important truths that he's already taught. Here he's just teaching them all again. In this way, the Lord is like a persistent parent who needs to tell his children the same things over and over again. Clean your room. Practice your instrument. Be kind to your brother or sister Put your dishes away. Pick up your clothes. I'm confident there is not a parent here who can honestly claim that they have only ever had to tell their children something once. And then they obeyed perfectly. Jesus had taught his disciples who he was and what he came to do. And they saw his works with their own eyes but they still didn't get it. So Jesus tells them again by means of another miraculous feeding. Don't you see who I am? Don't you see what I can do? Like he declared through the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is the true shepherd who leads his people to lie down in green pastures and provides everything they need. Jesus is also the new Moses who delivers miracle bread so that all the people are fed. Jesus is the one promised long ago. He is God incarnate. Friends, this is so obvious in so many ways, not the least of which is how his actions connect to the Old Testament scriptures. What Jesus is now doing during his earthly ministry reveals that he is God. Consider what has happened here and listen to Psalm 107. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. The psalmist describes something God will do, and now we see Jesus doing it. There's only one conclusion Jesus is God. Why would Jesus do the same miracle twice? Here's a third answer. Because Jesus came to save both Jew and Gentile. 
Jesus came to save both Jew and Gentile. As I already mentioned in this second miraculous feeding, Mark underscores in particular Jesus' compassion for Gentiles. We saw this very clearly in the text last week. Jesus' rescue mission was always meant to save both Jew and Gentile. What we read about in Mark 8 is a shadow of the banquet the prophet Isaiah describes. It's a messianic banquet. And listen to what he says. In Isaiah 25 and verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. Who will feast with the Messiah? All peoples. All peoples, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. You see, friends, what, what we see in the second feeding is the good news of the kingdom spreading. As a gathering of redeemed sinners in Minnesota in the year 2023, we should be thrilled by this text. This is the beginning stage of the global spread of the gospel to all peoples. There is a direct line from the events described in Mark 8 to what is happening in this building this morning. So to bring this all together, Jesus is proving yet again that he is the Messiah sent from heaven. He is God incarnate. And he alone can satisfy sinners from every nation, from all the peoples of the earth. Don't miss the beginning of verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied. That is so much more than a mere description of something that happened. That tells us something about Jesus. Danny Aiken writes, just another normal day in the life of Jesus, the Messiah, who satisfies all who follow him. Oh, friend, if you are here today and you're looking for contentment, joy, and satisfaction in something or someone other than Jesus, you will not find it. Only Jesus can satisfy your deepest longing. Only he can satisfy your hunger. So come to him in faith today. You will not leave him unsatisfied. You will not leave hungry. Reminder number one, Jesus is the Messiah sent from heaven. Now, reminder number two, those who are spiritually blind reject the true identity of Jesus. Those who are spiritually blind reject the true identity 
of Jesus. So Jesus is the Messiah sent from heaven. Those who are spiritually blind reject the true identity of Jesus. We find this in verses 11 through 21. Look at verse 11 again. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. We have another confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders, the Pharisees, those who want nothing more than to discredit Jesus. Their stated desire was not at all what it seemed to be. They were acting as if they wanted Jesus to do something that would authenticate his claim to be the Messiah. You can easily picture the self-righteousness oozing out of them as they say this. No, 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 please do something. Show us a sign. We're, we're for you. Authenticate all your claims. This is sort of like all the cool kids at recess, convincing the slowest and most uncoordinated kid in class that they want to see how fast he is. So they flatter him and convince him to do something that will only cause embarrassment and shame. The stated desire of the, the cool kids is a ruse for a more sinister plan. The Pharisees are like the cool kids, thinking they could fool Jesus. But he knows their hearts. He knows that they want nothing more than to dismiss him entirely. Friends, think about what they're asking for in light of what Jesus has just done. As one commentator writes, how many signs did the Pharisees need to see? Jesus had been going through the region of Galilee in a blaze of miracles. Having just fed 4,000 with seven loaves and a few small fish, what more could Jesus do to prove who he was? Notice Jesus' response to the Pharisees in verses 12 and 13. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Jesus is grieved and frustrated over the condition of the Pharisees, and he understands that the Pharisees embody what is true of much of the generation that he has come to. Their problem isn't that Jesus refused to give them a sign, it's that they were spiritually blind. And spiritual blindness is the essence of unbelief. In their extreme arrogance, they rejected the word and the works of Jesus. Friend, anyone, anyone who rejects the true identity of Jesus, who dismisses his words and his works, this person is bound by unbelief. They are lost. Spiritually blind 
and in desperate need of saving grace. They need their eyes opened. And it doesn't matter who you are. You can be intellectually brilliant. You can be a generally moral and upright person. You can be a student of the scriptures. You can be a regular church attender or even member. But if you are blind to the true identity of Jesus, rejecting his words and his works, then you are an unbeliever. Just this past week, someone sent me a video of conservative Jewish political commentator and cultural critic Ben Shapiro. Here is what he said when he was asked who Jesus was. Quote, I don't even think Jesus was a prophet. I think he was a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble. Just moments after he says this, he also denies the resurrection of Jesus laughing while he says, we're not in to miracle stories. Friends, this is a heartbreaking snapshot of the same kind of spiritual blindness we see in the Pharisees of Jesus's day. Arrogant unbelief is no laughing matter. And we see it everywhere, both by those who claim a form of spirituality and those who reject any kind of spirituality altogether. Spiritual blindness is the essence of unbelief. Uh, let me say it one more time. Because the Pharisees thought they had it all figured out, because they believed they had all the answers, there was no room for Jesus. It was their pride that blinded them to what they needed most to acknowledge their deep spiritual need and embrace the one standing right in front of them. At this point in the story, we shouldn't be surprised by the spiritual condition of the Pharisees. But pay close attention to what happens next. Look at verse 14. Now they, the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they 
said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Remember what just happened. Jesus just used seven loaves and a few small fish to feed 4,000. And there were seven basketfuls of leftovers. Why in the world did the disciples only grab one loaf? We don't know. But do you see what's happening here? Back, back in chapter four, Mark recorded the story of Jesus in the boat with his disciples traveling across the Sea of Galilee. And while traveling, they encountered a massive and terrifying storm. The disciples confronted Jesus because he was sleeping. And as he is awakened, he miraculously calms the storm. In that little vignette from the life of Christ, we saw the disciples forgetting who was in the boat with them. Well, it's happening again. Why would the disciples be worried about how little bread they had when Jesus was in the boat with them? The guy who has now multiplied bread on two occasions for as many as 20,000 people is right there and you're asking, what are we gonna do? We don't have enough bread. Now, it would be easy for us at this moment in the story to shake our heads in disbelief at the actions of the disciples. After all they've seen, how could they so easily forget who Jesus is and what he can do? Well, perhaps instead of judging the disciples we should take a moment to think about all the times we do exactly the same thing. This is why I opened the way I did this morning. What did I say? And I include myself in this, perhaps as the chief of the assembly of the forgetful. When the second or third, or 50th round of spiritual challenge or crisis comes, it's like we've completely forgotten who God is. We act as if we've experienced nothing in the past that would fuel present faith. This is why we've all heard so often from this pulpit that one of the greatest dangers God's people face is the danger of forgetting. Forgetting the word and works of God. Forgetting who he is and what he's done. The disciples should serve as a warning to us and we should heed the words of Jesus in his response to our forgetful faith. Look at verse 15. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. One New Testament scholar explains Jesus' point when he writes, a small amount of leaven will permeate a whole batch of bread dough. 
The leaven of unbelief has gripped the hearts of the Pharisees and Herod and has taken control of their entire lives. Watch out, Jesus tells the disciples. Don't let this happen to you. Don't let unbelief take you down and take away the knowledge you have of the divine truth you have seen and heard in me. Brothers and sisters, forgetting and unbelief work hand in hand. And this is a real danger for everyone in this room. This is why we would understand our gathered worship services every Sunday to be aimed at battling unbelief by helping you remember who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Unbelief is a real danger for everyone here unbelief, forgetting who Jesus is and what he's done. So what we want to do every time we gather together is battle unbelief by remembering. With every song we sing, we are declaring the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. With every prayer, we are rehearsing the words and the works of Jesus With every sermon, we are seeking to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his splendor and majesty as he is revealed from Genesis to Revelation. With our weekly observance of the Lord's table, the gospel is displayed. Why? So that we will remember the Lord until he comes. As we see the warning of the Pharisees and even the disciples in this text, this is my prayer. May God give each of us the grace we need to battle unbelief by seeing and savoring the Lord Jesus Christ.